0: Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details.
1: Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry?
2: You're listening to a podcast from The Word.
3: Welcome to another word in your ear. Now, there have been a number of books written about West Coast rock music, but considerably less about the Californian pop revolution that laid its foundation. But thankfully, that's been adjusted by the arrival of an absolutely wonderful book called Hollywood Eden. And we are joined and delighted to be joined by a man with a large cigar on the go, actually, by (laughs) Joel Silvin. Joel, welcome aboard. Lovely to see you. Good to be here with you. And you're in San Francisco, right? Right in the middle, yeah, Petrero Hill. All
2: Fantastic.
3: Right. With some very impressive posters behind you. Well, you
2: know, uh, I, I, I see we've got pretty good-sized record collection going oh, here, too. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. So are you born and brought up in San Francisco? Pretty much a, a, a bridge away over on the East Bay in Berkeley. Right, uh, I see. I, I've lived in San Francisco since I had the good
3: sense to do so. And you started out, uh, uh, to explain how you got into writing about music and how you first got kind of access to the whole music world.
2: Well, I dropped out of uh, Berkeley High School in June of 1967. It was a, yeah. really a good time to leave school, in San Francisco especially. And uh, the, that fall, I went to work at the Chronicle, the San Francisco Chronicle as a copy boy. Oh, right. Uh, $55 a week. And... Full access to the guest list at the Fillmore. All right. So I was on the guest list for Cream and The Who and, and Hendrix and, you know, you name it. I, and uh, I, I couldn't tell you which I was more uh, taken by, the, the the daily newspaper world or the music I was hearing. And the idea that I could write about rock bands for the newspaper just struck me as insane and
3: then soon enough that's what i was doing were they reviewing those bands already or was it your idea to cover them
2: the chronicle featured uh, the uh, work of ralph j gleason oh, of course, who started yeah. writing uh, about uh, jazz and pop music for the chronicle oh, about 1949 or 50 i couldn't yeah. really trace back the exact beginning but it made him the very first person to write about that stuff uh, uh for a daily newspaper in the country. And of course, you know, Gleason went on to have the kind of career that nobody in, in that wrote about music could ever have again. Uh, close personal friend of Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington, the guy who discovered Dylan for the mass media, uh, co founder of Rolling Stone. I mean, it, you know, it just goes on and on with Ralph. Uh, so I grew up reading Ralph uh in, in the chronicle. And going to school with his kids, and and you know, the shadow of Ralph Gleason fell heavy on my life as far as you know the path I uh, went on to.
0: Now, your book's about Los Angeles, and uh, tell us about what your view, your first encounter with Los Angeles was like. I think you went there as a ten-year-old. Is that right? Yes, yes. Uh, my my auntie lived in an apartment uh, uh,
2: next to the. Um, American Legion Hall on Highland Boulevard that she'd been in since 1933. Uh, And uh, I went down there uh, at uh, age 10. uh, I I visited uh, Disneyland and uh, uh, ate at uh, uh, Musso and Frank's. Uh, My uncle, who was a big shot lawyer, uh, got and got us in to see uh, uh, some shooting at uh, Culver City of West Side Story. It was not a. Uh, oh, really? Uh, yeah, it was kind of incidental scene, but you know that's wow, very know
3: exciting.
2: <laughs> oh <laughs> no, the <laughs> whole thing was very exciting, Los Angeles in 1960. Wow, I mean, it was beautiful place. Uh, the weather was unbelievable. There was so much excitement everywhere, whether it's like you know the movie stars' footprints in Grauman's Chinese Theater. Or you know, the the Schwab's lunch counter. It all reeked of uh, you, you know uh, romance and 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 uh, the entertainment industry and and yeah, it was it was. Uh, so there wasn't was, even
0: any smog then, you know. So the, that was no less the case for you in San Francisco than it would be for us back in London. We just used to watch Seventy Seven Sunset Strip on the TV and think. That's the dream life we would like to lead. You were the same in San Francisco. Well, California was a different
2: place from the rest of the world in in, in that time. Uh, it was before jet travel. So really, you know, it was quite a hike to get out to the coast, and, and there wasn't much reason to go out to the coast. I mean, the center of the world was New York City. Uh, and California developed a kind of... Um, Native atmosphere and attitude and set of values, and 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 we all grew up with it, whether we were growing up in Berkeley or Beverly Hills uh, or San Diego. Uh, uh, all of it had its own sort of take on those things, but it was a
3: new world for all of us. Right? Do you write about the the book has a kind of cast list of all these kids who went to the same schools, basically kind of showbiz schools, really, for children of celebrities. Um, Give us some taste of the people you're writing about in the schools they went to. This is University High in LA, isn't it? Fairfax High School. So give us a a rough outline of of the kind of central characters of the book. Mm. The book
2: starts with the uh, 1958 class of University High, which is um, on the edge of santa monica the western side of los angeles uh after the hollywood hills come down from their slope uh so it serves the communities of bel-air and brentwood very uh well off and also neighborhoods chock full of uh, people in show business uh not just actors and actresses uh directors and cinematographers and that kind of stuff but the lawyers the accountants uh uh, it, was, it was very dense show business neighborhoods. And, and University High was where they all went. In, in the classroom of 1958, that's where Jan and Dean. Nancy Sinatra went to school there. Everybody knew that. She drove in a uh, pink uh, uh, brand new, 57 Thunderbird. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Bruce Johnson of the Beach Boys, uh, Kim Fowley would become a record producer. Sandy Nelson would become a recording artist and star drummer. Um, the, 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 there was a girl there whose uh, diaries about going to the beach and learning to surf. Her father turned into a best-selling novel. They called her Gidget. The real Gidget was in that high school class. So all this sort of uh, uh, locality, the, the 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 convergence of these people. Uh, fascinated me right from the start, but then you start looking at University High in 1958. You know, you're looking at kids who drove themselves to school in their own car. They were 10 minutes from the beach after school. You want to go play volleyball after school? Uh, they congregated uh, at the diner that one of their uh, uh, gal pals' uh, uh, parents owned. I mean, it was a a very small town and a very privileged and uh you know sylvan moment in in hollywood history uh a a, a time and a place that was like perfect to be an american teenager
0: so it was the real life that these very privileged kids uh, led was kind of sold to the rest of us as as the ideal life that we'd all like to lead as teenagers
2: who wouldn't yes no it looked gorgeous and uh, it looked different. it looked uh, fresh, it looked new. It was uh, something that struck a nerve all the way across the country and indeed around the world. And the world. Uh, the, uh, Lou Adler was uh, started out in show business uh, uh, managing Jan and Dean. and, and one of his uh, sort of uh, cunning realizations was that in that world of American bandstand, Pop stars, there were all these dark uh Italian uh kids in coats and ties from Philadelphia. And and here he had these two Californian beach bums in uh madras shirts and Bermuda shorts. And he decided to play that up. He made right. them dye their hair even more blonde, and he dressed them in, in sweaters and and that they definitely, they were the anti Dion's and, and uh, it, it was the beginning of the whole idea
3: of California in the pop world. I right. mean, he had the sense to need to, to hear one of their early recordings of, I think it was probably baby talk, which they'd done in Jan's garage and go to the garage and try and recapture, but improve on that garage sound. Is that right?
2: Yes, of course. Well, that, yeah. that, Applied uh, to uh, uh, Jan's very first record, uh, the Jan and Arnie single, Jenny Lee. Yeah. That, you know, he was actually discovered getting a dub of his garage tape at a professional recording studio by a producer who followed him up the hill to see the garage that this was recorded in and indeed finished the recording uh, for the most part in the garage, although he too overdubbed on it. uh, But then when, so it was an established pattern by the time Lou Adler and his partner herb Alpert, showed up at the at the garage that Jan made these records on these tape recordings and and they would just fix them and add the necessary parts in the studio later and those guys would have to deal with the tempo problems
3: sure. and they then kind of latch on what the beach boys are, are basically doing later on which is which is kind of surf music but you make a really interesting point about about the surfers, which I'd never thought of before, that they're not just idle, rich kids. They're, they're a rebellious, radical element, you know, who pride themselves on their kind of freedom from convention. Tell us a bit more about that. I thought it was really fascinating. I
2: think the surfers in Southern California were a, a parallel to the beatniks out of San Francisco. Yeah. They, they were outdoors and athletic, but the Uh, rejection of conventional society, the embrace uh, of of nonconformity, the singular uh, outlier kind of stance that they both took were very similar. You know, the beatniks were maybe more coffee shop uh, uh, chess games and um, poetry, Uh, but the the surfers uh, had their own little clique that had their language and music and, and, and spots along the coast. So there were, there, were, there were parallel attitudes. And of course, this is the late 50s when convention is, is, is an oppressive fact of American life. And uh, anybody that, that dares deviate from that risks being alienated from the mass of society. And, and the idea that people such as these surfers or these beatniks would uh, willingly abrogate that
0: responsibility, that was a whole new thought in American culture. So with, with the uh, surf music became a strand in the music business, didn't it? It was kind of, we knew surf music in the UK, even though we didn't know surf at all. Um, and was that part of kind of... Uh, taming that outlaw side of the surf culture that it was turned into acceptable pop music via the beach boys uh, and jen and dean and so forth
2: oh and you know uh the everything that followed uh uh the the whole uh surf culture broke in across the world as you guys point out And um uh, you know i remember skateboards uh uh hitting the scene and uh bleeding Madras shirts and, and, you know, bleaching your hair with lemon in, uh-huh. in the sun. Uh, yeah, no, California, uh, was suddenly an idea and, uh, the everyday life of these West side teams that they were drawing on to make these records, uh, suddenly was a national archetype that 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 resonated with teenagers everywhere. It's hard to say why, except God, uh, d- doesn't it look like fun? I mean, it's in your mind. You know, like,
3: it still looks like Two girls to fun. every guy. Absolutely. Two girls <laughs> to every guy. That's, I think, that's the cleverest opening line. Yes. As a kid, <laughs> I can remember thinking, that's unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> I want to get to this place. <laughs>
0: So what, what proportion? Uh, they always talk about, you know, when they talk about the Beach Boys, they always say Dennis Wilson was the only one who surfed. Uh, what what proportion of the kind of musical heroes who sang about surf actually surfed? Do you think? Oh, I don't think Dennis surfed. Oh, right, really?
2: I I I think he sat on the beach and watched.
3: Right. <laughs> Not uh, even Dennis. He was the only one who was meant to have surfed. The others yeah. apparently couldn't. That's incredible. Dennis so. was
2: a very athletic uh, yeah. sort of um, primal man. He looked as a big Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know, he fit in with that identity and understood that. But I don't think he was a board writer. Uh, Jan and Dean uh, rode. Uh, 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 you got to understand Hawthorne was a whole different place where the where the Wilson family was. That's like South Central Los Angeles, totally landlocked. You know, you can live there your whole life and not see the beach. Whereas West Side is is just a short hop to the ocean, and and the beach culture is a, was a big important part of life on the West Side. So Dennis was an adventurer, right? He got on the bus. And took the bus 20 minutes down Manhattan Beach Boulevard, where Manhattan Beach was. Manhattan Beach was a hotspot of surfing. And you could sit on the seawall all afternoon and watch real dudes work out out there. Uh, much Who's like on the idea? West Side,
3: you had to go up to Malibu to see real surfers. Right, I mean, right. Whose idea was it? Was it Brian Wilson's? Who was the person who invented, if you like? The the, the idea that you could market a particular music about surf music to surfers and beyond. The The idea
2: for Brian to write a song about surfing was definitely emanated from Dennis because Brian didn't know squat about surfing. And it came up, apparently, in an audition uh, for um, a record company long before the Beach Boys, who were at the time called the Pendletones. Right, yeah long before they'd ever played a public gig they auditioned for a small time record company guy and he said he wasn't interested in their uh, o- you know old standards they'd worked up you needed something new something that was you know hot and happening and and Dennis just blurted out some well what about surfing and and they went home and and, and repurposed one of Brian's old high school compositions into a song about surfing it doesn't really go very far and by the way the record is a complete knockoff
3: of Jan and Dean's style. so uh, Which they recognized, didn't they? Because the Beach oh, Boys supported did. them. And, and uh, they, they were their kind of pickup band at a gig. And they By said, 19- you stole all the backing vocals from our record. Is that right? By
2: 1962, when Beach Boys made "Surfin'," Jan and Dean had been a factor on Los Angeles radio for more than three years. And, and although... Baby Talk was the only real nationwide hit they had. All their subsequent records were uh, much played on Los Angeles radio. They were yeah. regional act with a highly developed personal style. And the Beach Boys simply borrowed that. They, the The backing vocal, the, uh, the doo-wop part that Mike Love sings on uh, surfing is just a reworked version of Baby Talk. So, right. anybody who was familiar with Jan and Dean records, and many people were in Los Angeles, heard that and went, "Wow, it's sort of like a Jan and Dean record." But the novelty of it was it cap- captured, uh, uh, it capitalized on on this surfing thing that was just sort of starting mm. to, like you know, be featured in Gidget movies and Surfing magazine was a, a starting to spread around, and it was just growing along the coast.
0: All right. So who, who are the people uh, in this scene that you've written about this particular window here who you think aren't deserve to be known uh, more widely known or, or the contribution more widely recognized than it probably is? Who do you think are the, the key people? I mean, we know about, you know, the wrecking crew and we know about Brian Wilson and all that stuff. Are there other people who should be getting more credit?
2: Well, the linchpin for me deciding to move forward on this book project was getting Jill Gibson to agree to cooperate. All, uh, this is not undiscovered territory. There have been many really excellent books written about this stuff. Uh, I wanted to tell the story a different way. And one of the things I definitely wanted to do was I wanted to bring the women out of the background cuz it's always been painted as this total boys club and it's not as if women didn't exist back in those stone age times they had more tightly proscribed roles than they do now but they were they were existing they lived and i wanted very much to have a female protagonist up in 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 the foreground it's also why i played up the Nancy Sinatra story and and i don't know of another uh, artist whose records had the same kind of impact as hers who has been less well covered in the histories of rock than Nancy Sinatra it's hard that's to explain that's a good point because they were huge hits weren't they it's more than huge hits too uh, that boots record was a, as as it's revolutionary kind of described in the in the in the book is a major piece of of, of role playing, of changing, uh, of how women could be in pop music and, and how Nancy Sinatra could be in her own life. So it's a really major record. Uh, and, and there's nothing about Nancy Sinatra's career and life out there. And to me, it's, it's, she had her own fascinating and unique struggle for identity being Frank Sinatra's daughter. Uh, and, and the only reason I can come up with why she's missing from the rock histories is because rock histories have been written largely by males hey, and they really haven't yeah. paid very much attention to what women were doing at that time.
0: Yeah, so That's
2: hey. an important difference about Hollywood Eden. And Jill Gibson is a big figure in that book, especially in the final act. Uh, and, and bringing her out is like a way of getting the whole world of that time in the book, not just the guys.
3: Right, right. There's an extraordinary story about Jimmy Bowen, isn't it, who is not it was brought in to, to to try and give her a hit or else she would be thrown off her own father's label. And he was married, he was engaged to her and then was also in a relationship with with ex Louis Prima's wife Aquilee Smith. Is that right? He
2: actually was actually uh, uh, Nancy Sinatra was the sideline deal on that and he was engaged oh, right. to Aquilee Smith. Yeah, and and he broke up with Nancy when he married Keeley Smith, and that that certainly didn't last very long. Jimmy Bowen went on, of course, to become like this big, huge influence in Nashville with the Garth Brooks records in the nineties. Oh, yeah, he did. Yes. But yeah, he was like this sort of professional Texan back at Warner Brothers in the sixties who was uh, uh, getting um, chart life out of uh, dinosaurs like Sammy Davis Jr. and Dean Martin, and even Sinatra. I mean, he got Sinatra back on the charts for the first time since the 50s. I'll, though I don't think Frank ever did Strangers in the Night live, ever.
0: <laughs> no, probably not. Tell us about, I mean, there are also, you know, legendary renegade characters like Kim Fowley. Tell us, you know, what what part Kim Fowley played in this? is an amazing
2: character uh, in, in terms of, I don't think he could exist anywhere but Hollywood. Uh, He's not a singer, he can't play an instrument, he can't really write songs, he can't really produce records. And it's unclear exactly what his talent is, except he keeps keeping his finger in the game all along. Uh, It's kind of a creepy presence, gets into um, uh, an antagonistic relationship with Lou Adler uh, when they're both sort of starting out that continues for years and years. And you know, manages to just barely stay in the game year after year. And has his fingers on things, uh, but you know, it's hard to say. And yet, still, like he's like the cockroach of Los Angeles rock, because the at, at, uh, uh, the penultimate scene in the book is uh, Bruce Johnston bringing of test pressings of pet sounds to London and playing them in his hotel suite for John Lennon and Paul McCartney. Incredible and, and, scene.
3: It's fantastic. And
2: who's there? Who's there? His buddy
0: from University High, Kim, Kim Fowley. Fowley.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can't shake him off. <laughs>
0: later on to this go, well, to form the Runaways. But that's obviously well, beyond look, it.
2: You know, let's let's be clear. I mean, J- Jackie Fox is extremely credible in her reporting of being raped by Fowley on her first night on right. the job there. Fowley, in my book, is just merely a creep. But yeah. in later life, he went way beyond being a creep.
3: Yeah, yeah, Well, you said brilliantly, you said he finally needed to have enemies to justify his poisonous view of the world. Because that the story, <laughs> which is it's incredible. It's throughout the book, isn't it? His rivalry with Lou Adler, stealing bands off each other, stitching each other up. You know, it's it's vicious stuff. But the various other characters, Terry Melcher's an interesting character that you write quite a bit about. Yeah, well, he, you know, do you think he deserves more credit than he he's he, he has? Uh,
2: Melcher is a kind of like uh... You, you know, medium level figure, uh, he's an interesting character because he's this child of privilege, right? He's Doris Day's son. Yeah, That didn't make his life happy. His stepfather was a tyrannical, uh, uh, abusive father, uh, you know, a, a, a wealthy uh, Murray Wilson. So, uh, you know, his, his musical career, his rock and roll represented the same kind of rebellion for him, uh, that it would uh, for a working class kid or, or, or a black kid at the same age. And yet here he was, he was just this beautiful blonde haired son of Doris Day. He had the same freckles as her. And yet, you know, he had to struggle through life and, and, and rock and roll was his salvation. It, 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 he didn't really find his voice as a, as a musician until he hooked up with Bruce Johnston. And Bruce Johnston is a major figure in Hollywood, Eden. I mean, he goes all the way back to Jan Berry's garage, and he's just connects with so many things all along the way and is always moving forward that by the time he joins the Beach Boys in 1965, for the his first session was California Girls. He'd already had a major career and was a major figure in Los Angeles rock and roll. Uh, when he hooked up with Terry Melcher, Melcher really discovered his own voice and really they blossomed as this kind of um, roadshow Beach Boys that could turn a, a Ripcord's record uh, into a, you know, a cunning and and florid little Beach Boys impression. And and the Ripcord's, by the way, don't appear on the record. They 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 just were standing there watching mm-hmm. Bruce and Terry saying all the parts.
0: Mm. <laughs> Tell us, uh, uh, Phil Spector is is it- it, should we should we associate Phil Spector with the East Coast or the West Coast?
2: Well, Spector uh, was Fairfax High, which is the sort of middle of uh, Hollywood, Jewish middle class uh, um, neighborhood. Herb Alpert was also a, a graduate of Fairfax High. And his very first hit record was uh, the summer after He graduated from high school Uh, to know him is to love him by the teddy bears which he wrote produced and directed and schemed over uh but he very shortly thereafter relocated to new york where he became something of a boy wonder under the tutelage of uh jerry lieber and mike stoller the uh great songwriters and record producers who themselves had come out of los angeles earlier uh he recorded all those great records in Los Angeles, beginning in 1962 with He's a Rebel, when he wanted to, uh, found himself in a hurry to record this song, having gotten word that another producer was planning to record it before he could get back to New York. So he just pulled together uh, a, 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 a session. He called his high school buddy, Steve Douglas, the saxophone player who'd gone on to play with Dwayne Eddy, but who'd moved back to Los Angeles and was playing sessions around town, mostly r and sessions. And he asked Steve to put together a band. And Steve got Hal Blaine on drums and Al DeLore on piano and Tommy Tedesco on guitar, Ray Pullman on bass. And, and uh, they found um, Darlene Wright, who would become known as Darlene Love to sit in as the Crystals lead vocalist. And they cut this song, He's a Rebel in Gold Star Studios. And that was the beginning of this uh, group of studio musicians who would much, much later come to be known as the Wrecking Crew. But those guys were the raison d'être, the, the 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 reason that that all these brilliant musicians could express themselves. They were the new kind of session musicians that showed up in jeans and T-shirts. They weren't old time big band musicians that were slumming to play r&b dates no, no, these guys were rock and rollers and and i mean steve douglas had never heard jazz he he, he picked up the sax after he heard the, the the sax solos on the middle of drifters records and, and r&b stuff so these guys represented this whole new aesthetic in studio musicianship which was going to allow this west coast pop scene to flourish and they played on all of Spectre's records. After that, he come to Los Angeles to make the records, and still operated out of New York until 1965, when he moves back to Los Angeles. And I think we should consider that as a pivotal emblem of how the power had shifted to Hollywood by virtue of all the changes that were under were, were going on in in the record business.
0: Right, because around about that time. Everybody starts wanting to be in Hollywood, don't they? I mean, the the New York musicians want to move to Hollywood. The way is, is Dick that just... Clark was first. Oh, right, Dick Clark,
2: okay. you know, left Philadelphia for uh, Hollywood and, and and relocated America Bandstand on. on uh, that's a shocking geographic shift. Yeah, Philadelphia was snug in the armpit of the East Coast. You know, just a train ride right away from New York. It was no problem getting the New York record business to come down and appear on. The
3: Philadelphia. But, you know, it was difficult to get the West Coast people into Philadelphia.
2: Right. And
3: presumably another kind of pivotal moment was was the kind of the arrival of Sunset Strip, or the invention, development of Sunset Strip, because before that it was kind of hippie teenagers, wasn't it? Uh, uh, and this was suddenly Los Angeles keying into a moneyed adult world. Would that be right? You mean the discotheques? Uh, yes, yes, tell us yeah, about, yeah, about it's that.
0: interesting. Is that just an Austin Panthers fantasy or what? Was it, was it real? I don't know. That
2: was an interesting transitional period. Uh, it's, it's just after the Beatles, but uh, a lot of the music was a throwback to 50s rock and roll. Uh, and it was about dancing and drinking uh, in nightclubs, uh, and it was definitely a post-teenage crowd. And, and, and nobody had really seen that coming. Rock and roll was teenage music up until then. Right. Uh obviously the Beatles were going to start to change that uh over the course of the next you know year or two years. But uh the whole Johnny Rivers phenomenon was just something Lou Adler stumbled across. And uh the whiskey a go-go was similarly just this this sort of accidental invention
0: that was the right club at the right time in the right place. Johnny Rivers is really interesting. I I I remember him being quite big. All these records sound as if they were live, but they probably weren't. Is that right? They all sound as if there were people clapping in the background. And it was, is that, is that the case? Well, the original plan
2: was to make the record at uh, the whiskey. And, uh, because that was the milieu and and the uh, whole thing. Did, the Adler saw that you didn't want to separate that from the milieu. But the results weren't that exciting. So they went into the studio and, and, and made it more exciting.
3: Right.
2: Right. Right. Everybody so, does that. Uh, I mean, ask Pete Townsend about, uh, you know, the live at Leeds. Where <laughs> did you
0: record that, Pete? <laughs> well, they did it again in Hull about three days later. So I don't know. I don't know. And I think I think there's a lot of patches on that on that record. Right, you know. Right. Oh sure.
3: Yeah. So where's,
0: where, where's the kind of closing point of of your story? Oh, it's, sim- it's
2: real simple. It closes with the release of Good Vibrations. Right. I wanted to draw a narrative through line from Jan and Dean singing in the showers at University High after football practice to the greatest pop record ever made. And and that was my story. Uh, there, there's a slight coda after that, but not much. It's just sort of a, Ta-da. So no,
3: it's perfect because it's kind of like the last kind of uh, last fanfare of pop before West Coast rock music takes over. So yeah, it's absolutely. a perfect ending, really. Thank you. Yeah,
2: there was so much that was different after that, and uh, it, 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 everything gets cloudy and 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 hazy and 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 sparkly in the recollection. Uh, I really was interested in in that journey coming from complete innocence. To self knowledge, and uh, self knowledge, you know that 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 can be a very treacherous pathway. Let's just say that. Uh, and uh, obviously, Good Vibrations was the the apex of Brian Wilson's uh, whole creative uh, life.
0: Uh, he's never been operating on those heights again. But who has? No, no, very really? enough. And also, it's a reminder of just how quickly things happened in those days, isn't it? You're talking about a very short period of time, aren't you, really? That's eight years. Eight That's... years, I mean, you know, it just goes by in a flash now.
2: But um, those were long, eventful, and, you know, historic years. Uh, there's so much that went on in the backdrop of... Uh, that just doesn't even feature in the story, you know. I, I, I do interviews uh, on about the book with some younger writers, and and they're uh, uh they, they don't quite understand all this military service, you know. Dean going into the military, uh, Kim Fowley in, in the Air Force Reserve, uh, you know, and Jan so upset about the draft board, and it's true that the the, the draft was eliminated. Uh, uh, 40, 45 years ago. So uh, maybe they're even their parents
0: yeah, don't know remember. about it. But yeah,
2: yeah. Uh, it, growing up in America in the fifties and sixties, the draft was a reality, and, and every single male had to contend with it. Yeah. And so that's the sort of feature in 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 these narratives that you had in the, the thing. So the, the the historic time was very plodding and very full of of. of, of you know, a lot of, of ideas and events that all filter into this
0: without having to be shown. Right, right. Well, there's the book, Hollywood Eden. Was that inspired in any way by trying to your riposte to Hollywood Babylon or is that not no relation at all?
2: I wanted to find a title that wasn't somebody's song, you know. Oh, right. <laughs> so they didn't identify it too heavily with, with one. one band. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And so I, I I wanted something that was sort of redolent of a of a of a cheesy uh a 50s bestseller like Peyton Place or something and and you know I, I, uh, Hollywood Eden. <laughs> I, I like it and 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 it and it and it fits it works for what I'm trying to do
0: here. Absolutely. It's right. it's a, it's a va- it's valuable valuable and entertaining addition to, uh, to rock history. And uh, thanks very much to Joel Selvin for uh, writing the book and talking to us about it.
2: This podcast was brought to you by The Word. <laughs>